This podcast episode is brought to you by the sleep brand Casper. Visit casper.com forward slash elevator and then use the promo code elevator for $50 off your purchase on select mattresses. Recovery Elevator episode 158. But towards the end, there was no one around anymore. And I was totally isolated and I was totally miserable. And I was thinking about suicide. And the last thing on earth I ever wanted to do was get sober. And I finally got so desperate that I was willing. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,250 days. On today's podcast, we've got Anna. She's been sober over 17 years, lives in the Hollywood area, and my goodness, has she accomplished a lot in sobriety. I'd like to take this time to welcome Mike to the Recovery Elevator team. We had Randy doing the show notes for six months, and now Mike has signed on for six months of service doing the show notes. Mike, you've already done a couple weeks. The show notes look great. If you go to recoveryelevator.com, you look at the website, or you're watching on your mobile device all the notes on the episode, Mike listens to the episode, and then he creates this. So thank you, Mike. And I'm actually going to hear Mike's story in an interview in a couple weeks. I can't wait. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe Artie. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. I saw a meme the other day that cracked me up. And if you listened to the previous two podcasts, you might have heard me already mention this, but here it is. Everybody was kung fu fighting. I've believed that phrase since the first time I heard that gem from Carl Douglas. I just assumed that everybody was kung fu fighting. I had always assumed during the entire three minutes and 10 seconds of that song, during the whole official music video, that there were fists of fury flying. There were sweeping leg kicks, roundhouses, just crazy kung fu moves. I assumed after the filming of this music video that hospital beds were full of people that had received injuries from these fierce kung fu battles. Don't worry, I'm going to tie this into recovery, so bear with me. So everybody was kung fu fighting, and I've taken that at face value my entire life. So I decided to investigate. I watched the original Carl Douglas kung fu fighting video, which actually was the B-side recording. They recorded that thing in like 15 minutes. They were running out of studio time, dedicated the majority of the recording to the A-side, but they did that B-side, and they're like, man, this is way better. So kung fu fighting that song was almost an accidental recording. Anyways... So during the music video, I counted 17 total human beings. And guess what? To my astonishment, none of them were kung fu fighting. Carl Douglas, the singer, he wasn't even kung fu fighting. 
Yeah, he was dressed in kung fu garb, and he threw in some air kicks, some air punches here and there. But dude, that guy wasn't even kung fu fighting. You know, and I'm not a kung fu aficionado, but the way his air punches and air kick looks, I don't think Carl Douglas has ever even slapped somebody, let alone been in a kung fu fight himself. So the narrative that everybody was kung fu fighting is strictly denied. Want your skis? Go get them. Even after watching the official music video with Carl Douglas, I'll count that as 0.5 people kung fu fighting, I still didn't believe it, so I continued to search. So there it was. I saw another kung fu fighting music video that had like 600,000 views. This time, Bruce Lee was in it. I thought, okay, in this one, everybody is kung fu fighting, so it must be true. After watching that video, only 34% of the people were kung fu fighting. Not even close to everybody. Denied. So how am I going to take the previous 2 minutes and 33 seconds and make it applicable to recovery? Well, wait for it. Everybody drinks. Just like everybody is kung fu fighting. Well, I found out that not everybody, actually rarely anybody, was kung fu fighting. It kind of turns out the same with drinking. I used to think that everybody drank. And there's a similar narrative that I've heard on this podcast. Hey, you don't understand what it's like growing up in a small ranching town. All we do is drink. North Dakota? God, that's all we do is drink. Paul, you don't know what it's like growing up in a big city. All we do is drink. Paul, you may have been to Paris, France, but you've never been to Paris, Texas. All we do is drink. Well, that one actually might be true in Paris, Texas. Unless you live in Wisconsin, where I think like four or six out of the top ten drunken cities are in the United States of America, sure, you can use that argument if you live in one of those cities, but it's kind of a consistent theme across the whole world is that everybody drinks. That's what we believe. So let me investigate that statement a little further. Just like not everybody was kung fu fighting, hmm, maybe not everybody does drink. So let's check this out. So according to the NIAAA, this is what they have to say about alcohol use in the United States. According to the 2015 National Survey, 86.4% of people ages 18 or older reported that they drank alcohol at some point in their lifetime. 70.1% reported that they drank in the past year. 56% reported that they drank in the past month. Let's look a little further. I recently read an article in the Washington Post, and you can find the link to this article in the show notes for Recovery Elevator episode 158. You can go to the website or click the link in the show notes to see this article. But it says nearly one-third of adult Americans do not drink alcohol at all. Furthermore, another one-third of adult Americans consume less than one alcoholic drink per week. Holy buckets. So everybody drinks? Actually, it's kind of skewed the other way. Nearly one-third of adult Americans don't drink at all. Man, my perception was completely wrong. I thought everybody drank, and everybody drank as much as I did. Denied. Want your skis, Paul? Go get them. So where would you be if you drank, say, one glass of wine at night with dinner? Well, that would put you in the top 30% of American adults in terms of per capita alcohol consumption. If you drink two glasses of wine per night, that would be 14 drinks per week, that puts you in the top 20%. But in order to make it into the top 10% of American drinkers, you would need to drink more than two bottles of wine each night with dinner. And you'd still be below the average of those top 10 percenters. The top 10% of American drinkers, this is about 24 million adults over the ages 18, consume, on average, 74 alcoholic drinks per week. That works out to a little more than 4.5 750-milliliter bottles of Jack Daniels, 18 bottles of wine, or three 24-can cases of beer in one week. Again, 
Only you can diagnose yourself with a drinking problem, but if you're in that top 10%, you probably have a drinking problem. So the top 10% of drinkers account for well over half the alcohol consumed in any given year. And the shape of this usage curve isn't exactly unique. The Pareto Law states that the top 20% of buyers for most any consumer product account for fully 80% of sales. This usage curve can be applied to everything from hair care products to Xboxes to guitars to standard poodles. But the consequences of this are a little different when it comes to alcohol. Insert addiction and ruin lives. But here's the messed up part. Big alcohol. That industry is making the majority of their profits on alcoholics. Hmm. That sucks. Again, this podcast is not a diatribe against alcohol. If you can drink normally, drink one for me, please. But food for thought. Another interesting stat I read while doing the research for this podcast episode was... If the top decile could somehow be induced to curb their consumption level to that of the next lower group, the ninth decile, the total ethanol sales, alcohol sales, would fall by 60%. Wow. Again, the point of this podcast episode is not to create animosity. It's to debunk the myth that everybody drinks. Last podcast episode, I was a little hot. But now, I see things more clearly, just like Jimmy Cliff would. Me not drinking alcohol is a tremendous opportunity. I'm thankful to be off of that hamster wheel. Okay, enough out of me. But before we hear from Anna, let's hear from Casper. And what is Casper? Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get the best rest, one night at a time. Casper's mattresses are designed by humans for humans. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep service that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Casper offers affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. Casper has hassle-free returns if you are not completely satisfied. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So for $50 off your purchase on select mattresses, go to casper.com forward slash elevator and enter the promo code elevator. Again, for $50 off select mattresses, go to casper.com forward slash elevator. Use the promo code elevator. Okay, now let's hear from Anna. Anna, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Anna. Let's get right into this, Anna. How long have you been sober? November 19th. It was uh, 17 years. So 17 and a quarter years. So the year 2000. Are you familiar with the hit song Cisco Thong Song that came out right around that time? Well, of course I'm familiar with the song. Did it really come out in November of 2000? Are, are you some sort of musical savant where you know things like that? Yeah, it's something was weird about that. Like, I remember Usher Yeah came out in February 2003. I remember that th- that song, Cisco Thong Song, was either November 99 <laughs> or, like, early 2000. But, yeah, just uh, for some reason, yeah, I hear the word 2000. That's exactly what popped in my head. So, yeah. That we, is uh, hilarious. We're both on the same page with that. And, uh yeah, before we get any further, Anna, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, you have a family, you have any pets, and what do you like to do for fun? I'm from Marin County, which is up north, and before I got sober, my fun was kind of limited to like cocaine and alcohol and camel light, and yeah, I do all sorts of things right now. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I got pretty 
into my career as soon as I got sober and immediately sort of became the writer I'd always wanted to be. I have a cat named Lily. I have a boyfriend and life is good. Nice. And Recovery Elevator, I look forward to all these interviews, but this is this is kind of a special one. <laughs> uh, I remember when I was in my journey getting sober, which I'm still on my journey. This is this never anything. I'm sober for a while. But I remember when I was drinking, I was I was looking for podcasts and I heard an interview. Um, you've inter- you actually have a podcast and we'll get to that a little later. But uh, I remember you interviewed uh, a, a band member from the band Corn, and I love the band Corn. And, uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you for all the work you've done out there. There's a, there's a large volume of recovery work out there. That's fantastic. So I'm excited. So thanks for, thanks for doing this. Ah, oh, thanks. So you're telling, you heard the Rob Patterson episode before you got sober. Maybe not before I got to, maybe it was early sobriety, but I, it was a couple of years That's ago, cool. maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. Well, I know this because he would, I've now had two members of the band corn on my podcast, but one was only a few months ago. So yeah, Rob was, it was years, it was a couple of years ago. So, yeah, it was maybe good. maybe I'd been sober at that moment, but I saw it in uh, like the the podcast description. I was like, man, I love corn, and uh, it was a really cool oh. interview. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And you know, I I I can't believe you've been sober as as short a time as you have because I feel like I've been hearing about Recovery Elevator for a really really long time. For a while, I thought I would, I had the only recovery podcast, and then I blinked, and there were so many. But yours was the very first other one that I ever heard about. Yeah, yeah, and and you are a, you were a pioneer. Let's just put it that way. There was when I started this. Of course, I looked to see what was out there. And Shane from the Sober Guy podcast and Omar from the Shared Podcast launched two days before yep. mine. But it was kind of like you were you were the trailblazer out there. So so nice job. I know, but now you guys have all caught up and surpassed me. So my problem is I keep changing the name of the podcast. I mean, it's not a problem. I, I feel like I'm always kind of refining what I do, but it's any part of so many things I do, just like you. You know, the way Recovery Elevator is this kind of massive brand that does all of these things. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I learn as I go. Oh, absolutely. Even in like the three short years I've been doing this, we went to the private groups have changed so much. Recovery Elevator, Cafe RE, Sober Travel, this and that. And man, like don't make any changes in early sobriety. I made a ton of them. And before I hit the record button, I said like, I feel like just now I'm catching up and it feels good. So, so tell me about the Uh, projects you're working on right now. So I am fully focused on Light Hustler, the brand. And that is has so many tentacles that every, every day I kind of think of a new one. You know, basically, my whole career, I've been a writer. All I ever wanted, I published six books, hundreds of articles, and then I realized that publishing was the worst business in the world to be in, hmm. you know, because it just started to fall apart if you wanted to make a living. And I realized my whole life, I never subscribed to wanting to make I'm like the opposite of that person who really wanted to be a writer, but his parents pressured him to go to law school and then had a midlife crisis and decided he wanted to be a writer. I'm the opposite. <laughs> you know everybody went and pursued that and then said, wait a minute, those people were right. I want to have a solid foundation. I want to be rewarded for my hard work. And, you know, publishing was great when I first got into it. And um, in 2005, my first book came out. And by 2012, when my sixth book came out, it was just broken. Hmm. And I thought, I don't, you know, and, and this is the world we live in now. And you can sort of lament the fact that all the traditional methods for getting our work out there are broken. Or you can celebrate the fact that we get to build our own audiences. And that's something I was really late to the game. And, you know, because I wor- then I worked in websites. I helped create the website The Fix. And then I left The Fix 
and started my own website, After Party, and actually sold it to the people who owned the fix. And then I thought, yeah, and then I was like, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm, I can just work for myself and go directly to the people who want it. And so my last two years, I consider myself sort of in graduate school for marketing. Because marketing, I always thought it was like a bad word. And it's actually the most creative thing I've ever done. It's so much more creative than writing. Because it's really exciting. You think, well, there are these people who want this information. There are people who want to hear my podcast, who want to take my courses, who want to come to my retreat. So how do I find them? And, and I think that's exciting. Because I feel like, and I'm sure you know this, once you have the people who are interested, you can do whatever you want. And it's rewarding. So I'm not really answering your question. But so, you know, we do a bunch <laughs> of things. We're starting, we're starting a publishing division. We have a book coming out in September by a guy who is uh, the agent to, he's a sports agent for like Magic Johnson and Dennis Rodman and all these people. And Magic Johnson's going to do the introduction. We think it's going to be a really big book. So I have a couple books going in this light hustler imprint. And then we have a retreat that's happening in April. And then I have these two online courses, one which is on how to write a book proposal and one which is like I'm heavily into right now, which is called How to Fall in Love with Yourself. And it's based on... Ooh, I love that um, topic. I love that title. Self-love. I, for about 15 years, I gave relationship advice on the Today Show, on the talk, I was the sex, dating, and relationship expert on a show called Attack of the Show, where Olivia Munn, who's now a big actress, she and I had a segment where we would answer viewers' dating questions. And so I sort of built up this whole career as a relationship expert accidentally, um, because one story I wrote for Playboy sort of ended up becoming this big deal. So I heard about thousands and thousands of people's relationship issues right when I was getting into recovery and really studying spiritual principles. And so I took the 15 years of hearing about those people's experiences, my own experience, and applied all the spiritual principles I know to it. And I broke it down into eight steps. And it, and it's great. Anybody who's in recovery will, I think, really, really respond to this. I learned through personal experience. Like I had a ton of self-hatred and I couldn't get into a healthy relationship until I sort of sound so cheesy, but learned to love myself. So that course is available now. And then I have a coaching program for writers, which I open a couple of times a year. I can only take 10 students at a time and I walk them through the process of writing book proposals. And then I pick one of those 10 and they get a meeting with my lit agent and a publisher in New York. So that is tentatively we're opening again. I've got two groups going right now. So we're opening again, I think in March or April. And I got two, like a fraction of the stuff. Oh my, yeah. that's a fraction. Okay. I got two things to say right yeah. now. So I take notes yeah. <laughs> when I'm doing these interviews yeah. and number one, my pen ran out of ink while writing all the accomplishments and all the <laughs> things you've done in sobriety. And number two, if I do one thirty second of what you've done in sobriety and the rest <laughs> of my sobriety, I'll be, I'll just be a happy duck. Like that is, that is unbelievable. That's not true. You've done so much, but thank you. I mean, all that energy that like we all had and that like we put into cocaine or alcohol or whatever it is like it's it's crazy frenetic energy that if you if you siphon that and you focus it on what you want i believe we can get anything we want i totally agree with that and and so it's 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 light hustler like where can we actually go yes what's the website yeah just lighthustler.com and you know that's sort of the home for all of those things 
Gotcha. Because I do remember when it used to be the After Party Pod and then the Recover Recover Girl Podcast. Um, so this is all under lighthustler.com. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. And I think that writing course sounds very intriguing because I know a lot of people, this, this creative component of their brain that, that was stifled for so long with the alcohol, it, it, it's, it's, it's open, it's alive, and it's hungry in sobriety. That sounds so cool. And you've had a lot of good, good traction with that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been making this up as I go along. You know what I mean? So I was thrilled that anybody wanted to sign up, let alone that I've been able to sell it three times. And I, I have a mentor, this guy, Joe Polish, who's, you know, a, he's one of the big marketing experts in the world. And his whole way of thinking is, you know, help people. Everything you sell and everything you do, have your goal be for people to go, oh, my God, that was the best money I ever spent. I would have paid double. And so I'm so appreciative of anybody who listens to my podcast, anybody who signs up for one of these courses that, that I that I become obsessed with helping them, not because I'm so selfless, but because it feels good. It gives me a sort of, you know, raison d'etre. Absolutely. It's uh, Zig Ziglar, who's no longer with us, but help others get what they want. And eventually you'll get what you want. I, I love it. Uh, and, and Anna, one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is, is hearing the personal stories. And, and I'm excited to learn more about you. Um, you know, what, mm-hmm. I also want to talk more about your 18 years of sobriety, but let's pack it up a little bit before that. When did you first mm-hmm. start to realize that perhaps you had a problem with drinking, with drugs, and you might not be headed down the right road? I think I didn't realize it was a real problem until I was at the stage where I was just like doing coke alone in my apartment with my two cats. You know, it's hard to convince yourself it's not a problem when you're at that stage. But it all seemed normal based on who I was surrounding myself with and, you know, the sort of lies I was telling myself until then. And so that was probably, I have a terrible sense of time before I got sober. Like, I know I hold up in my apartment doing coke by myself, but I couldn't tell you if it was for like a year or two years. I know I moved to LA in 96 and I got sober, I went to rehab in May of 2000. And it took a couple years for it to get real dark. But towards the end, there was no one around anymore. And I was totally isolated and I was totally miserable. And I was thinking about suicide. And the last thing on earth I ever wanted to do was get sober. And I finally got so desperate that I was willing. And it turned out to be nothing like I expected it to be. The process of getting sober or sobriety? Well, both. For me, I was so unhappy and so... So I was so willing that that the process of getting sober was not difficult. It was so much easier than the way I had been living. And I do think our, that those are directly proportional. You know, I was so surrendered. I didn't know that, you know, but the, the line between misery and surrender is pretty thin. So I, I the way I remember it, it was a long time ago now, you know, as I came in, I was really bitter and angry and sad. And then that quickly changed and I, you know, sort of did what was suggested and my life radically improved to the point that it was sort of a brutal awakening a few years in when I kind of got hit with real life again. And I was like, wait a minute, I thought recovery was the answer to all my problems and I was never going to be sad and I was never going to have another problem. And, and I had like the ultimate pink cloud experience. So I feel lucky because I, I see and I hear about people struggling so much in early recovery, and that, that was not my experience, but it hits us all at one point or another. 
So I had two pink clouds. I've had two two year stints of sobriety, and I had a pink cloud that lasts about a year, and they both just disappeared. And it sounds like the same thing happened with you about two years. And yeah, then real life sets in. We also have to still pay bills, pay mortgages, watch out for pets, kids, families, things like that. And that's that's mm-hmm. hard. That's hard to do. And we have to be like a normal citizen on this planet and do those things. And yeah, but, um, where, where where did alcohol play a role in this process? Well, it, it was always there. And, you know, I had my first drink when I was 12, and I drank steadily up until the end. I never thought it was a problem because it just didn't do that thing for me that cocaine did. And towards the end, I didn't like it at all. But I didn't see that I drank alcoholically until I went to rehab and was told, oh, addiction, alcoholism, it's all the same thing. And then I didn't believe that. And so I actually, so I went to rehab May 2nd, 2000, and on November 18th of 2000, I had sort of hit this, you know what, those people are wrong. I'm going to go out and have a drink. And I went out to have that drink, and I followed that drink with a bottle of wine, and I followed that bottle of wine with four and a half hits of ecstasy. And I was like, okay, okay, I get this gateway drug thing. If I drink, I'll do drugs. And then it was like a few months in or maybe a year into sobriety, I realized I had always drank alcoholically. It's just my perspective was so skewed that I didn't realize that. I thought it was normal. Talk to me more about your perspective being so skewed and you thought that was normal. I'm I'm curious. I'm interested to hear what you're going to say. Well, like I assumed, you know, by, by my last year, I wasn't going to parties anymore, but when I was going to parties, which was, you know, my first book is called Party Girl. My whole life was about going to parties. I thought if you went to a party at like a club or a bar, everybody walked in, went to the bar, ordered shots, and like looked around for the nearest drug dealer. Like I thought that's what you did. That's what people did. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I got sober. And my first job when I got sober, I was working for this magazine called Premier Magazine, which is no longer around. And I had a column called Party Girl. And for for that column, I was required to go out all the time. I had to go out every night. I went to movie premieres. I went to Oscars. I went to all the super glamorous shit. And that's when I looked around and I saw, oh, my God, people go into parties and they just walk in. They walk in. They talk to people. I mean, you know, it just, I, I had no idea how the rest of the world was living. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I, was, I was at a meeting the other night and the perception that we think everybody is doing the same thing we do. But this guy, this gentleman told a story about he was driving uh, a truck in, at like 6 a.m. in the morning and he was still drunk from the bar before and the truck was full of dynamite and he was pop- passing cop cars on the road and he just perceived like, oh, this is normal, right? Like everybody does something similar to this, but our perception okay. is completely out of whack with what reality is. And I am, I'm so high on this meme right now. It's like everybody was kung fu fighting. And actually, like, were they? Was everybody kung fu fighting? I actually looked the music. I watched the music video. And only Carl, the singer, is like halfway kung fu fighting. Nobody's kung fu fighting uh-huh. in the official music video. And it's just like that. You assume everybody walks into a bar and just goes like buck wild crazy and the wheels come off. But not really. That's not how it goes. And I want to ask you another question about rehab and, and feel free to disagree with me on this. You know, what mm-hmm. do you feel like actually brought you into rehab? Do you think it was alcohol or the other drugs? I know it was cocaine because it was killing me and I couldn't stop. So while it turns out my problem was alcohol as well, it was definitely cocaine and Ambien. I was taking a ton of Ambien mm-hmm. and I kind of thought that might be a problem too, but 
This was 1999. So nobody was talking about Ambien. I wasn't taking it for fun. But so I, I went in for cooking. Gotcha. And you mentioned earlier with alcohol as being the gateway drug. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, listen, you always hear that, right? You hear that alcohol or pot are the gateway drugs. And for me, I loved cocaine. I didn't need to go get drunk to go think of calling the dealer. I just called the dealer. And then I drank in order to kind of calm down a little bit. So I never subscribed to that gateway thinking. It was only when I relapsed for that one night that I realized, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, my defenses are going to be down. Because I remember what happened is I drank some wine. And then I was with this guy who said... I don't feel bad about giving you alcohol because he know, he know I've been sober for six and a half months. He said, I don't feel bad about giving you the alcohol, but I feel kind of bad about the drugs. And I remember he opened up his hand and he had like a, a like handful of ecstasy. And I tried to say the sentence, well, I can't do that. That's so close to what my problem was. And I got as far as going, well, I can't. And then I like grabbed a pill. So, mm-hmm. so I couldn't not do drugs if I drank. And, and same with smoking. I quit smoking when I was nine months sober. And, it, you know, if I drank, it would be real hard not to smoke. But it's not hard now. Yeah, and I've always heard growing up that marijuana is the gateway drug. And I asked that same question uh, to you when I volunteered at Hope Rehab in Thailand this last year. And it was the people that had been in rehab for a couple weeks. I said, what landed you in rehab? And even though they were there for cocaine or there for ecstasy or another drug, a lot of them, you know, when they thought about it for a while and able to look back, they're like, man, it was the alcohol. When I took, when I started drinking, you know, that's when I did that. That's when I did ketamine. That's when I did MDMA. That's when that happened. So I don't know. I, I agree with what you said earlier, like addiction, cocaine, alcohol. It's it's kind of under the, it's all the same umbrella. I don't think there's a, a difference of drugs and alcohol. They're all drugs. Yeah. Like for me, you know, I, I know that that is not true for everybody. You know, that is something my first 10 years, I really truly drank the Kool-Aid and thought, well, you know, it's jails, institutions, they're dead if you ever were addicted to anything. And, and, and now, you know, and it was when I started at The Fix and I, and I started to hear from people who had all sorts of stories about it, you know, and, and I don't want to ever say anything that would trigger somebody to think that they're okay. But I know people who used to do drugs addictively and now drink. And I know people who used to drink alcoholically and can now occasionally do drugs. And I know people who can be sober and not do a program. And I, I, I've heard of everything. And so all I know for sure is what works for me today. And that is like having a recovery program, not a perfect one at all. Um, and, you know, and meditating and exercising almost every day and sleeping, trying to sleep eight hours a night. And, you know, it's a, having a little team, a therapist, a sponsor, you know, it takes a village with me. Yeah, and I'm excited to dive into the recovery stuff a little bit. Uh, on this on this mm-hmm. podcast, I have people that have been sober for, for three days, for, for six months, but I want to take advantage of the fact that you got 18 years of sobriety. I mean, you are in like the top top 3% of all interviewees on this podcast. So let's chat about some some long-term recovery. And you know, what have you learned mm-hmm. most about yourself in, in these last 18 years, would you say? First of all, it's seven. Let's not let's not jinx me. It's seventeen years in like a couple months. Oh, oh sorry about that. <laughs> what have I learned the most? I mean, I, that's a great question. I I wouldn't say I have some super profound revelations as a result of being sober this long. The most shocking part about it is that I'm old enough to be sober seventeen years. Like a lot of us, I I never thought about my future. I never thought I would like kind of assumed I would die young. 
you know, I thought the rules didn't apply to me. Like, oh my God, I'm aging too, just like everybody else. I hate it. But I mean, I guess what I've learned is like, I'm, I'm a very sensitive creature. And despite all these years, I still have this conviction that when I have a negative feeling, it will last forever and ever and ever. You know, one of my great epiphanies, most of my great epiphanies happened in my first year. You know, I can't, I assumed when you were depressed that, you know, if you were depressed, it lasted for like a month or two months or six months or something like that, you know, to realize when I got sober, like, wait, I can be depressed at nine in the morning and be completely fine by 10. You know, I think a very alcoholic characteristic is to assume you always feel the way that you feel at that moment. So, I, but but it's, it's alive and real still, you know, that'll still happen to me. And, you know, you probably have experienced the same thing. Being aware that you're doing it to yourself doesn't solve it. You know what I mean? Like, you can go, oh, I know that I'm convincing it. this isn't real, but it feels real. So, you know, I've learned to sort of ride things out. And all the cliches, I've learned to accept how I'm feeling. I've, I've struggled to, but I've learned to accept people for behaving the way that they behave. Anna, you mentioned 17 years of sobriety. Apparently alcohol or not drinking the poison is the fountain of youth. Cause I did a quick Google search of you, Google images. I saw your photo. And then before I hit the record button, you said 17 years of sobriety. I was like, okay, great. She got sober when she was seven years old. That's just, this, is, <laughs> Thank this you. isn't adding up. But yeah, it does wonders for us. Yeah, I mean, you look you look young, and I, I'm, I'm uh, I've I've been uh, I've learned the lesson the hard way a couple of times. I'm not going to ask any age of uh, <laughs> women. So yeah, it's, it's a woman, especially a woman in LA, where we're not allowed to age. Thank you. I, I I do believe that for sure. It's like you don't do drugs, you don't drink, you don't smoke cigarettes, you exercise every day, you meditate forty minutes a day. You're going to look younger than most people your age because they're not doing that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could subscribe to you know, Avon you know, lotions and products, or you just don't drink and, and put toxins in the body. That works pretty well at the same time. Right. And, and so I'm interested to talk about the self-loathing component. And you mentioned a book that your company is working on to publish. I forget the title. It was a, What was the title of that again? We don't have a title. You mean for the, the agent's book that's going to be written by Matt, the intro by Magic Johnson? Well, it was like the Love Yourself book, something like that. No, that's like course. That oh, everybody okay. needs to go buy how to fall in love with yourself. That, okay, that's it then. I've yet to meet somebody who's been successful in recovery who hasn't addressed the issue of self-loathing, that hasn't found a way to yeah. fully embrace and love themselves. Talk to us some more about this course. I'm, I'm curious myself. Well, it's, you know, it's a complicated thing. You know, I truly believe, you know, alcoholism is not about how much you drink or how much cocaine you do. You know, it's about that self self-hatred coupled with self-obsession that, you know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, or I'm the piece of crap in the center of the universe. And, you know, I believe it's, you know, there's a genetic predisposition that we have that, you know, it sort of couples with, it's exacerbated or diminished by whatever happens to us in our formative years. I know, you know, for me, I have like a really, really emotionally abusive dad. He told me really terrible things about myself. And, so it's sort of my life's work to kind of undo that programming and that thinking. But not all alcoholics had to come from dysfunctional families, but I know very few of them who say, who describe families that seem wonderfully supportive in every single way. So, 
you know, in terms of, you know, getting to self-love, it's a, you know, it's not a state you get to stay in, I think. But for me, the process and what I lead people through in this course is to really get that what I think we all do in relationships, those of us who have struggled in romantic relationships, is we assume that everything the other person does is a reflection on us. You know, people who, you know, I used to really be attracted to unavailable men. And I, I would think, well, I drove him away. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said this. Like, it, it, I always brought it back to me in this very, very narcissistic way. You know, and then consequently, I would assume all these terrible things. Oh, I'm always going to be alone. I'm never going to find someone I connect with. And, you know, so really the process of this course is break down those thoughts and see where they come from. And I guide people through, take the relationship that has caused you the most pain. What happened? What did you do out, out of fear, out of false evidence appearing real? And how can you change the, literally the neurotransmitters in your brain so you're not acting out of fear? Like if your main sort of defect of character or characteristic was insecurity, then, you know, then make an intention. I got people through two weeks of this. You come up with 14 characteristics. Uh, that you acted on in that relationship that caused you the most pain every day, make an intention to focus on the opposite of that characteristic. Mm. And it's really about repeated behavior. You know, scientists used to believe we, we were locked. Our brains didn't change after our mid twenties. And that's not true. You know, and it's a lot of what we learn in recovery and what uh, cognitive behavioral therapy teaches and all of these things that basically you can't stop yourself from having negative thoughts, but you can stop yourself from being ruled by that thought. You know, and the analogy I use is, you know, a car races by, you don't grab onto the bumper and let it drag you. And yet that's what we sometimes will do with our thoughts. So it's sort of that whole, okay, then thought came in that always or never thought, thank it for sharing and move on. And this process is like, gets people into the habit of changing their thinking so that they can actually love themselves and actually be in the sort of relationship that they want. It sounds like you're saying to not double down on the emotions, to not grab the bumper of that passing car, for example. Don't be mad that you're mad. Don't be upset that you're angry. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Right. Yeah. And don't conclude negative things about yourself as a result of what happened. You know, the example I use is we all learn to drive cars unless we grew up in Manhattan. And you didn't beat yourself up for like getting in the car and not knowing how to do it. Yet that's what so many of us did in relationships. You know, a relationship quote didn't work and you conclude all these terrible things about yourself. And instead of going, oh, okay, wow, I just learned this. So, you know, the first thing is forgive yourself for your mistakes and then break down the thinking that causes you to be so negative and scared around relationships. So what would you say to somebody? Because I, I've got private recovery groups and, you know, there's, there's people in there with years of sobriety, but there's a lot of people there that are still on day one, day zero. And I okay. see this post a lot and it's, it's hard to read because my heart goes out to them. It's something that along the lines of, is like, Hey, I'm such an idiot. I'm on day one today. Like, what would you say? Well, I am a program person. So I always urge, you know, cause I hear from probably five strangers a day, my whole sobriety, I've heard from people. And I say, go to a meeting and I get, or come meet me. I've met tons of strangers at meetings. I get that that is very off-putting to people. So then sometimes I will say, it is not what you expect it to be. 
the perception of people who struggle is that those of us who are sober a long time went skipping into sobriety, that we were just gung-ho. And it's like, no, we all felt the way you did. We all tried. I tried to quit many times before I actually got went to rehab. And I know people who've been to treatment 18 times and are now sober 18 years. So I think people will try and try and try and assume it's one of those always or never scary thoughts. I'm never going to get this. And it takes what it takes. So I would tell anybody who's new or struggling, just keep going. And that thing I was saying earlier about like, we're convinced the feeling we have is never going to change. Your feelings are going to change, you know, and like, you know, fuck up. I believe you have a disease and a very, very small percentage of us are even trying to get sober. So like you're in the winner's circle if you're there and you know, there's absolutely no reason you can't have this. The people who are sober are not better than the people who are struggling. They just kind of were desperate enough, in my opinion. Yeah, and listeners, I think Anna dropped a huge value bomb right there. Is in there's so many people struggling, and very few of us even try, even try to get help yeah. and make take this journey. So if you're listening to this podcast, trying to get sober, you're already in the winner's circle. I loved how yeah. you phrased it right there. And you know, we, you said I'm a program person. Walk us through a day of day of the life of, of Anna. How are you staying sober? What does your recovery portfolio look like? Well, I mean, it's not great. <laughs> I mean. I am hardly a great model of program. Uh, you know, sober a long time. I'm, I'm self-absorbed. I, I, you know, I don't know how open ever to get about 12-step programs, but, you know, I go to a couple meetings a week. Um, I have a sponsor. I don't call her nearly enough. I only have one sponsee. I'm not, <laughs> not a great fan of the telephone. I'm not a great sponsor. I'm great to her because I love and adore her. But, you know, but, but I am hardly, I know, model program people, and I am not one of them. I think because my work and my career revolves so much around recovery, I get it all day long. But, you know, staying sober is not my challenge anymore. Living life on life's terms, that is my challenge. And, you know, I sort of have sort of sprinkled throughout some of the tools. You know, I, I meditate usually at least 20 minutes a day, often 40 minutes a day. Exercise is a huge thing. I go to therapy. You know, I, I, I do a lot to just sort of remain at base level. And sometimes it works fantastically well. And other times, you know, I, I, I struggle. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety, Anna? What do you still want to accomplish? Because I have, I have no more room to left to, to write on my paper. So make it a good one. <laughs> and, and I don't mean this in a self-organizing way. I've kind of done it all. I have, I'm a big believer now in vision boards and visualization, and I have a bunch of goals I want to hit in 2018, and I've got, you know, different launches for different months, but, but like, you know, I, I do, I, I, that's, that's the thing about recovery. I do everything I said, you know, when I sold my first novel, I was like, if I just sell a book, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. I thought that was like my life goal, and it's like, oh, no, I did that. It was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. So, so God knows, I don't really do bucket lists. I do vision boards. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and Anna, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within uh -oh. 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yeah. All ready. right. Number one, Anna, what was your worst memory from addiction? Worst memory was when I accidentally started Special K, thinking it was cocaine, and spent, I think it was my 26th birthday, lying by a dumpster in the parking lot of the bar where I was having a party. 
Wow. <laughs> Next question. And, and we've yeah. all heard of that aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating uh, the gig might be up? You know what? It must have been. It was, it was, if I went to rehab May 2nd, I think it was like April, let's say 29th of 2000. Nothing special happened that day. I woke up that morning and said, I cannot do this anymore. And I called my mom and told her I had a problem. And I have no idea why it hit that day. Sick and tired of being sick and tired is what it sounds like. Yeah. I got there too. And I'm excited to hear you don't have to pick just one, but uh, what's your favorite resources in recovery? It's going to be books, podcasts, websites, anything. I, of course, am, you know, especially I like the ones I provide, but I know that's like really, really self-gratifying. There, there are a bunch of books that are amazing. I love Sarah Heppelin's book, uh, Blackout, Remembering mm -hmm. the Things I Drank to Forget. Sasha Skoblik has a book. I have a book called Party Girl. A, a writer named Paul Fuhr, who used to write for me at After Party. I'm reading his book right now because I'm blurbing. It's so good. It's called hmm. Bottleneck. So, the, and there's actually a book, a girl I'm going to have on my podcast. It, it's a book. It hasn't. It'll come out in March called Everything Is Horrible and Wonderful. She's the sister of a comedian named Harris Whittles who died of a heroin overdose a couple years ago. And and it's really interesting because you hear it from the sister's perspective, which is not something you normally hear. So I'm I'm a huge reader. As I told you, I don't listen to recovery podcasts, not even my own. So, uh, you know, that's and then and then, of course, I have I have an accountability group with Austin Cooper, who runs Sober um, Evolution. And so we have a Light Hustler accountability group. And that's a great resource. It's a private membership group that um, we just launched in January. That's great. Nice. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received is reframe what you call depression as discomfort and look at your life as a process of getting comfortable with discomfort. Oh, also, we get what we want when we stop insisting on it. That's a David Hawkins quote. It's in a book called Letting Go. Yeah, I love both of those. Those are fantastic. And and lastly, before we depart, Anna, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you spend more time than you'd like obsessing over alcohol or drugs, whether that means obsessing over doing it or shame over having done it or just any sort of thinking around it. Yeah, that works. And Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a trailblazer in this, this space, the recovery space. It's awesome what you're doing. Keep it up. Well, same. You're such a good interviewer. I really enjoyed this, and I look forward to having you on my podcast very soon. I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Airports can be a difficult place to stay sober. Just flying alone induces anxiety for a lot of people. The first time I was going to be a camp counselor for the Peru trip where I was going to be a chaperone for the high school kids, I think this was 2014, I had about a five-hour layover in the Lima International Airport trying not to drink. I was supposed to meet up with high school kids in like six hours. Well, I think I had like six to ten beers at a restaurant in the airport, another three or four glasses of wine on the plane ride down. I mean, I've talked about this more in detail in past episodes. It was a nightmare. But here's a cool trick. You can actually go to security or an admin office at the airport, and you can have them page a friend of Bill and Bob. That's basically somebody getting on the loudspeaker, speaking in code word, saying, hey, we need a friend of Bill and Bob to come to the subway by gate E6. Again, a friend of Bill and Bob to the subway to gate E6. 
That's a pretty cool trick. And in order to keep this content free, please support our sponsors. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>